0: Uh, When I first went to Bible college, uh, this is like a decade ago, I I wasn't sure what to expect because my friends who were going off to um, colleges went to places they called real colleges. I went to Bible school. Their schools had been around for centuries. My school was accredited for 10 years. Bible school students seemed to me like, like drifters. People who were going through the world and had a hobby they wanted to know a little bit more about. My friends who were going to things like universities had passion, had drive, had this like, they were going to change the world, but they needed some like severe education. And so they went to real schools. To be fair, I chose to go to Bible school. But when I arrived my freshman year for my curriculum, I was surprised to learn that while I was going to a Bible school, my freshman year curriculum didn't have any classes on the Bible, except for one class that was an Old Testament survey. Instead, I I had the academic rigors of a class called Spiritual Life and Community, which was essentially a small group where you learn how to talk about your life. While my peers were, you know, busy doing, you know, economics and biology and learning, you know, uh, business management and whatnot, I I was um, learning how to dissect my feelings. I had psychology. I had philosophy. I had essay writing. But for goodness sakes, I also had racquetball. Before I really ever touched the Bible midway into my sophomore year, I had all these other classes that didn't seem to measure up to the standard of becoming a biblical scholar with a credential degree to be taken seriously. And I remember all of us felt this way. We all were like, we're going to learn the Bible. And we got there, and they were like, yeah, yeah, put that away for a moment because we got to, like, reset you. And I remember in my sophomore year, one of my friends put voice to this in front of one of our um, Pastoral ethics professors, a man who himself went to an Ivy League school, a real school. And um, he heard our complaint, and he did what you do as a professor in a room full of 19-year-old men. Boys, sure. He, he went there with us. You know what it is when a professor goes there? They, they give credence to your idea. And he said, guys you're right, you're wasting your time. (laughs) We're all like, what did you just say? He goes, but listen, the reason that we keep you from any technical theology for so long is because you wouldn't know what to do with it if you had it. We're all like, try me. He says, listen, part of what we're doing here is helping you learn how to be real human beings. To help you understand the multifacets of this life here on earth. So yeah, you got to take a psychology class. Yeah, you got to take a class called interpersonal communication. Yeah, you got to do a lot of things that feel like kindergarten. But if we just handed you theology, you'd blow yourself up before you're out of your 20s. Instead, we want to give you a foundation of life to then attach your theology to so that you can understand the reality. And with these three words, he changed everything for me. He said, the reality is this, that everything is theology. So said, what you learn in a racquetball court has everything to do with what you believe about God. How you take care of your body has a lot to do with how you believe about God. What you understand about the world and ethics and philosophy and psychology has everything to do with how you think about God. And you won't know how to help people think about God if you're just pie in the sky up in your own ivory tower thinking about words. And so, yeah, we deconstruct you and we help you realize that life is learned on the ground and even there is theology. Even at nineteen, we knew those words were wise that everything is theology, and that's where Paul's going to push us this morning he He says to us. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, here's how God in his sovereignty saves humanity because of the work of Jesus, the power of his spirit. But then he turns the corner in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this. Look at this. You got it in front of you. I know you do. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then verse 2, that's what all we covered last week. Verse 2, this is what we're going to zoom in on today. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a huge turn in the book of Romans. We're out of the argument of Paul into his application. And the question is simply this what does Romans 1 through 11 mean? What is it all? Why does it matter? What should we do? And in these two verses, Paul gives us three commands, so to speak. He says, number one, give God your body. That doesn't, sounds kind of weird. That it doesn't, it doesn't connotate uh, what you eat or how much you sleep or what you do with your body sexually, but it kind of does connotate that. It really holistically says, give God everything that you have. Lay yourself, your very person, on the core of your being on the altar of God as a living sacrifice. Give God all that you are. And then he says, Give God your mind. We're going to look at that this morning. And in giving God yourself and your mind, you also give God your will. These are these three things, these three commands. Give God your body, give God your mind, give God your will. Mind, body, and will. In um, a lot of theology and psychology, that's what we call a holistic person. Give God everything that you are, all that you have become, all that you claim to be mind, body, will, your emotions, your intellect, and your will. It's the way that God heals and changes us. It's the way that he created us in his image. What makes you a person in the image of God? Well, it's your mental and emotional and volitional capacity. Your emotions, like the fact that you cried at the end of Titanic, proves you're created in the image of God. And if you didn't cry, you heartless person, Maybe it's the meds, but I can put myself there. There was two two people could have fit on that door, by the way. Never mind. (laughs) The fact that you have mental rationality, you're able to reason, and we tend to favor logic, shows us that God created you with a mind. And the fact that you can want something. You can will something. Like even when it costs us to do the right thing, we still are willing to do it because it's right. We have a will. Mind, body, will. Mind, emotions, will. This week, uh, what we see today, I just want to zoom in. I've, I've been tasked with only one line. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is a sermon on your mind. The question is, how do we give God our minds? Maybe a better question is, what's wrong with our minds that we would need them to be renewed in the first place? It's a great question you already know the answer to. The the question or the answer is simply this, our minds never shut off. Amen? Have you ever done that? thing where you lay down at night and try and convince yourself to go to sleep. It's a whole mind game at that point. I've had it where um, I sit down or lay down, I put my head on the pillow, and I start to close my eyes, and all of a sudden, every situation that requires my attention starts coming into my mind. And before I know it, even things that I have no power over, like coronavirus, like politics like whether or not the NBA should have handed out two slam dunk trophies last night or not. I don't know. I have no power over it. Spent three hours thinking about it. Why? Because my mind doesn't shut off. How many people have walked into doctor's offices before and said the word, don't raise your hands, but have said the words, Doc, I don't know what to do. I, I can be as tired as I, I think I am, but then I go to, to go, to, go to sleep and I can't turn it off. I have race brain." More Americans than ever are on psychotropic medication to help the mind. And the state of mental illness in America, this is not a, not a joke, it's, it's said funny, but I would use the word as depressing. It's the wrong word to use. The state of mental illness in America is at, at, at a minimum Conspicuous. We know our minds are sick. What's wrong with our minds? Some people think that our minds are just simply incomplete, that with more education and more knowledge and more information, we will be able to unlock the full potential of our minds. And on its face, that's not a bad statement. Um, Education does sharpen the mind. I'm a better person for having studied. I'm a better person because I still study. But John Piper was the one who put it this way, pointed this out, and I thought it was just very interesting. He said, um, education is not enough to overcome the corruption of our minds, he said, because the most educated sinners do the most damage. You look around at the world and the mass problems that we have in this world are not the result of ignorance. They are the result of education. I don't mean that in the sense of our public school systems or our private school systems. I mean that in the sense of smart people learned how to manipulate things, and they turned things to their own advantage. Some of the worst crimes are done by the most educated people. Instead, we need what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, to be renewed in the spirit. The spirit of our minds is what he said there. And the fact that our minds have a spirit tells us something. The fact that our mind has a, has a spirit shows us that our minds are not neutral territory. Your mind, no matter how much you like it, no matter how smart you think it is, no matter how right you think you are, your mind is not Switzerland. Your mind has a set, hence the phrase mind set. What is a set? It is a position. It is a point. Your mind has a view point. Your mind not only has a set or a point, your mind doesn't just perceive your mind has a posture. Your mind does not innocently interact with the world around you. Rather, your mind is treacherously bartering with dozens of senses and synapses and histories and ideas and desires and philosophies and norms. And it does all of this subconsciously. What's wrong with our mind? Listen, listen. For many of us, what's wrong with our mind is simply the fact that we've never thought about it. We don't think about how we should think. Paul says, Christians need to think about how they think lest they be conformed to the patterns of this world. That's what it is, conformity. That's where we start this morning. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Conformity. Here's what conformity is. Conformity is change from the outside in. It's the pressures on the outside that change us on the inside. It's being changed from the outside in. Mark Colton, my friend over at the Cedar Lake campus, he, um, he and I were talking about this passage this week, and he made this funny comment to me he said you know so, you know how like sometimes people say that their mind has gone to jello like my wife told me that after she had our first baby she's like i just can't think i got baby brain i don't know it's like my mind is jello he goes everybody's mind is jello because when you pour jello into a mold it takes whatever shape that mold is and then it's always in that shape until it's devoured he said it's just like us all of our minds are molded by what's around us until we're devoured Your mind is jello. Thank you, Mark Halton. I love that guy. He's not wrong. Because to be conformed means to be molded. And, And if you're thinking along with me now, you're thinking that not being molded by our environment around us is an impossible task. We are people who are impacted by our surroundings. This week, one of my children was conformed to the influenza virus. And guess who else was conformed to these invisible bugs around us? Right. Outside influences, undetected, but then causing harm. Paul says in this verse, verse verse 2 of chapter 12, he puts conformed in the present tense, meaning literally do not keep being conformed or do not be conformed any longer. What, What he really means is stop it. Like turn the train around. Don't go where the train is going. In fact, why don't you just jump off the train? Or as the director, Jordan Peele, warned us in his movie, get out. That's Paul's point. Get out. Get out of what? Look at what the ESV says. It says, do not be conformed, and that is any longer, to this world. There's a few words in the Greek for the word world. For God so loved the world. Uh, That's a different Greek word. That's the word cosmos. Here in Romans 12, it's a different word. It's the word aeon, or what we would say in English as eon. It connotes the patterns and cultures and systems and societies that make up our world order in this current age. It's best translated this present age. The Germans have a great word that we've adopted in English called the zeitgeist. It's like the cultural thinking of the day. Paul says, do not be conformed to this zeitgeist. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us, verse 1 and 2, that you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's zeitgeist thinking. That's spiritually uh, just nomadic. This present age is marked by a course, a power of the air, a spirit that is now at work. Meaning that that which is on the outside is not conducive to the godliness that God desires of his people on the inside. John Newton, the very interesting man that he was, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He once asked, Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on towards God? And the answer is no. On the contrary, I think what my friend H.B. Charles says is right. He says, Christianity is a battleground, not a playground. We don't come to God so that we can be free to frolic in green grasses. We come to God to be free from the tyranny of that which is at war with us. And we come in freedom to him to lay ourselves down to fight on his side. (laughs) The Christian life is not one where you can turn your mind off now that you're saved. In fact, to the contrary, Christians ought to be more reflective, more thoughtful, more intentional about the ways that we think because we're aware that there is a conforming standard that this world is putting upon us. Paul is saying fish recognize the toxins in the water get away we're at war against the forces of this world against our own sinful flesh and against the greatest enemy who is the devil himself and what i think is most haunting for us is that we don't even know we're being conformed by these forces we're like water that has tea steeping in it and becomes something totally else when did this turn into this I mean, you all watched me pour hot water into this cup and like a diva put my pastoral tea in here and put it on the stand. I made you wait for this. You thought I was just being a pompous pastor, drinking your tea out of your cup like the rest of us from Styrofoam. Uh, this is an illustration. I mean, it's happened right in front of your eyes. Did you notice? No. Why? Because it happened slowly. Because you weren't even paying attention to it. I mean, in magic, I'm the distraction, and this is the trick. Your eyes weren't on the thing. It just happened. And friends, when you go to your job, when you you interact with your family, when you choose to idle away your time on Facebook or Instagram, when you, whatever you're doing, This is happening all around you, whether you realize it or not. Now, I actually need this tea, so I'm going to take a sip. That's the idea, is that we can't see the clear water anymore because something else is in there. So how do we make sure that we don't sleep our way through life? How do we make sure that we're not clueless to the world around us? One theologian, Paul Tillich, he, uh, interesting man, he he, he passed away in the early 1960s here in Chicago, but he came from Germany and was an enemy of the Nazis and escaped out of theological pressure by the Nazis. And he came to Chicago in 1958. He wrote this. He said, At all the stages of our lives, we are accompanied by the incessant pressure of the tools of public communication, one of the functions of which is to make conformity a matter of course without letting people even become aware of it. Paul Tillich wrote these words in 1958, and you could today just change that one phrase, public communication, to today's current form of it, social media, and it reads like this. At all the stages of our lives, we were accompanied by the incessant pressure of the tools of social media, one of the functions of which is to make conformity a matter of course without letting people even become aware of it. Your social media use has changed you. And here's how I know. Have you ever taken a picture of food? When Paul Tillich wrote this, if he saw you taking a picture of food, he would have thought, there's a food critic. Are you a food critic? Is that normal today? Yes. In fact, I'm going to probably take a picture of the smoothie I'm going to down later. Hashtag flu remedies, hashtag winning. Okay? Right? Right? What is that? That's conformity. Silent conformity. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with taking pictures of food. That is not the point. The point is, you didn't realize why you wanted to do the thing that you were doing. Why? Because society conforms us slowly into their image. That's the most innocuous illustration that I could use. How do we make sure that we don't conform to the pattern of this world? Friends, we can't fight an enemy that we don't know. Paul says, do not be conformed, not do not be informed. To fight being conformed means we need to fight to be informed. Now our eyes have to be open to two things, I believe. The first is the reality of the majestic truth of Jesus Christ and his way, which promises us all things. And that's the message of the scriptures. Come to Jesus, find all you need in him. The second thing our eyes need to be open to is every single counterfeit that promises us the blessings of Jesus without the cost of his forgiveness. What I mean is everything that tries to promise us the life that Jesus offers us without actually being a Christian. Counterfeits, fakes, replacements. Let me press in a few areas in which I think we're prone to conform to the patterns of this world, just so that I bring them to your attention and can haunt you the rest of the week. The first is what I owe this to Paul Tillich. I'm going to try and synthesize his very dense teaching in just a couple of words here and then explain what it means and do this all while I'm on DayQuil. So we'll get through this. Tillich observed that all of us are born into subsets of patterns of this age called families. What is a family? A family. It is a culture within a culture within a culture within a culture. Every family has a pattern of doing things. Every family belongs to a pattern of this age, and every family itself is a pattern of this age. And certainly no one here would think of resisting family as a Christian idea until we recognize that the patterns of family often are loving and good, but are also often wicked and evil. And it's this mixing of principles, good and evil, that makes nonconformism such a difficult point to plot. Because we walk on the edge of a razor's knife, living out, honoring our father and mother, but also living out the words of Jesus to follow him at the expense of war with our own father and mother. Yet Jesus' first followers had to take a very clear stand. Uh, they, they took the first risk of not conforming to the traditional patterns of their age and to step out against their families and follow Jesus, even though their family's pressure was immense and the risk was high. And pay attention closely. I'll try to explain this, but, but here's what Tillich says. Yet when his first followers refused to be conformed to their families, they were not then conformed unto themselves— Their resisting the patterns of their family did not make them the new standard. Instead, here's what Tillich says, they were conformed to the renewing standard of Christ. And for this reason, all who are not conformed to this world are becoming transformed transformers who never set themselves up as a standard, but in their own renewal, they then see others renewed, particularly their families. Okay, what is he saying? You probably never thought about this, but your family has molded you into who you are and what you've become. And even if your family claimed to be Christian, the ideals and the patterns of your family may not be Christian. You might think about money or love or sex in a certain way, but it's not because your family lived in godly renewal, but because that's just what they knew. And there's a real sense that for us to be people whose minds are renewed and not conformed, we need to be testing everything. And doesn't that sound exhausting? But this is the way that Paul is calling us out. He's saying, listen, just because your parents did it this way doesn't mean that's the way that Christ is honored. Your your parents may have set you up to go to church on Sundays not out of a sense of true forgiveness and grace and worship of God, but out of a sense of legalism and perfectionism and out of their own moral righteousness. And you may have picked up that pattern and passed it along to your kids, not even realizing the brand of Christianity that you're passing along has nothing to do with what Jesus did. It has everything to do with what your parents did. You have conformed to the patterns of your family. Okay, so that touched a little close to home, but I think there's an even more closer to home pattern of this age today. And then I'm going to turn this and we're going to close. The bigger pattern that I see today is this. It's being conformed to the American ideal of unfettered autonomous individualism. It's a phrase that I'm borrowing from uh, this guy, Henry Blomiers. He was a student of C.S. Lewis, and he wrote this book back in the 60s, and they reprinted it in 2000, and it's super good. It's called The Christian Mind, How a Christian Should Think. And um, it has nothing to do with politics or anything like that. It has everything to do with us living in this world today. And if you want to take Paul to heart and you want one book to read that is this thick, the e-book is thinner. Um, Go ahead and buy it. Here's what I can summarize from Blomiers. He says, The pattern of this world today is tied up in one word. It's the word you. You is the result of our secularism. It's the idea that all that is now is all that matters. Certainly not God. Secularism leads us to a lot of things, but ultimately leads us to the fact that we put ourselves at the center of our world. Now let me show you some of our secularism that maybe has gone undetected to us. Remember that hashtag a few years ago, YOLO? You only live once. It was like this justification for teenage boys to do the dumbest things. What was it teaching? It was teaching that, hey, you only get one shot at this life. Make it count. How about that phrase, uh, stay in your lane? It's like, hey, hey. You're getting on my stuff, and I don't want you doing my thing because my thing is my thing. So stay in your lane. What about, I love her, but Taylor Swift, her song, Me, Total Secular Humanism. I'm the only one of me. Baby, that's the fun of me. The pattern of this world today rejects any sort of understanding that I am not the center of the world. If I had to put this into three words, I don't have to put this into three words, but I can put it into three words. Here's what the pattern of this day and age is. The the water that you and I swim in that we don't realize we swim in, it's three words. It's the concept of you on demand. You want to know how you think? You think this way. Me, on demand. I want whatever I want, whenever I want it, with whomever I want, however I want it. Just as long as I don't hurt anybody. This is the overarching principle. You can live your life by these words today, and no one will insult you. No one will uh, think twice about you. You're just doing you. You look at them, you go, hey, hey, don't judge me. I'm doing me. You do you, I'll do me. This is the pattern of the world today. You, on demand. What do you want? You want a new car? There's a loan for that. You want a new relationship? There's an app for that. You want a new pastor? There's YouTube for that. What do you want? Go get it. You deserve it. You, on demand. (laughs) And once you say it out loud, it kind of sounds foolish, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like dangerous in some sort of sense. In this form of a world, nothing is theology. Everything is me. And this conformity to self is exactly what Paul tells us to reject. Don't live your life in search of your own freedoms. Instead, recognize that we are free to become servants of Jesus. Here's the better way. Not change from the outside in, which is secularism, but rather change from the inside out, which is Christianity. The message of Jesus is not that of some, you know, international war over thrones and constitutions and systems of government. It's an invisible war fought on the turf of individual hearts. Why? Because transformation, real transformation, if you want your life to change, so help you God. This is how it works. It always begins within, not from without. When Paul says, do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, he's actually bringing us back to this theological doctrine that we studied a long time ago, but I want to bring it up back now. It's the doctrine of union with Christ. Remember that? Steve clipped himself in, the carabiners, to the ropes and said, when I'm holding holding on to him, I have all the blessings of Christ. This is what we're back to. Because Christ conquered death from the inside out. Because Christ defeated the enemy from the inside out. When we're united to him in faith, he sends us his spirit into us to blow us up from the inside out. That passage I quoted earlier in Ephesians 2, it tells us about following and being conformed to the course of this world. The next verse is Paul says that God being rich in mercy, which sounds a lot like Romans 12.1, that God, in view of God's mercy... Back in Ephesians 2, he says, because of God's great love, God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him. And then in Ephesians 2, 7, he says this, so that in the coming age, not in this aeon or eon, the coming eon, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the coming age, in Christ, we are transformed to show others the glory of Jesus. Our union with Christ is what highlights all the riches of God in contrast to the patterns of this world. It's all about our transforming God, transforming us, and the world seeing the difference and glorifying God. When you and I refuse to be conformed to the patterns of this world, God actually starts to transform our minds, and he gets a ton of glory. Notice how this works. Paul says, be transformed. Be transformed, which is passive. It doesn't mean that I can push the button and Bumblebee becomes a Camaro. No, no, no. Something is happening to me. This is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, And we with, all, uh, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And Check this out. He says, For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When we place our faith in Christ, the Spirit starts to go to work inside our lives. Passively, he is working on us, meaning we don't have the power to do this. But God does. And here's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians. God is changing you from the inside out. That's a guarantee. God is doing it. When we fix our gaze steadily on the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Spirit will change us to look like the one that we set our gaze upon from one degree to the next, to the next. This is transformation. God does this by renewing your mind. And here's how strange this is to our post-Christian world years now. Is that many of us, in light of, you know, the Enlightenment and rationalism and all that happened 100 years ago and now that's happening in a post-Christian world, The Bible tells us that the way forward is for us to have renewed minds. And we go, yeah, that makes sense to me. But the way in which our minds are renewed is a spiritual thing. And that doesn't make sense to us. It's a supernatural thing. And that doesn't make sense to us. Because we reject the spiritual and we reject the supernatural in favor of the logical and the rational. Our conformity to the world goes much deeper than you and I ever thought possible. That's the sentence that I got out of bed today with the flu to tell you. As your pastor, I care deeply about the way that you think because we are being changed and challenged on every front. And unless we have our eyes fixed firmly upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, firmly upon his grace and his mercy and his love and forgiveness, we will fall victim to things that sound good but are not rooted in the truth. God has a better way for us it is that our minds might be supernaturally renewed to see more of who he is and less of who we are. Transformation. God renews our mind. I told you, we don't have the power to do this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.10, God does this. But we have the responsibility. And that's what Paul's getting at here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says, God's going to transform you. In Romans chapter 12, he says, let God transform you. Don't get in the way. Don't, as it were, harden your heart. Don't stiff arm the work of God. Allow him to change your mind. Change your mind. Change your mind. If ever there was a message that doesn't connect with Americans today, it's the the message, change your mind. Because once I hear someone tell me to change my mind, I don't want to change my mind. I'm like, no, bro, you change your mind. I have the high ground here. You don't. And the reality is is that you can't change my mind. I can't change your mind. There's only one person who can change your mind. It's the Holy Spirit. Truly, the Holy Spirit. And you need to come back tonight to pray, partly because we are so out of step with what it looks like to be spiritual beings that we forget that the Holy Spirit is at work. You need to come be around an environment where the Holy Spirit has permission to move in your mind and to mess you up. You need to have permission to pray to the the Father and the Son and the Spirit and to watch him do supernatural things that you never imagined possible. God will renew your mind. I'm so far over time but here's what I want to say. Cuz I want this to be practical for us at some point. <clears throat> How do we renew our minds? First you got to look for the glory of Jesus. The only way you can be transformed is by beholding the glory of Jesus. So so listen, I wonder do you look for the glory of Jesus? Has your heart been fueled by his glory? Do you do you Do you try and see the glory of Christ in all things? Is for you everything theology? Uh, In this book, Blomier talks about pumping gas. How the natural man consumes gas at the gas station and sees it as a transaction. But someone who thinks Christianly about pumping gas will in that moment, you don't have to do this, but could do this, let your mind go to the source or the well, as it were, of where did that resource come from? And how did it get here? And all the mechanisms that took place for you to be able to get fossil fuels into your car so that it translates into kinetic motion. And who created all of those things except for the one and only creator, God? The Christian man or woman will also, at that moment, have the thought of, God told us to exercise dominion over the earth and subdue it, and so here we are, admitting the earth to our needs. But the Christian mind is going to ask the question, at what cost? Is this good for me to be subduing the earth in this way, or am I taking advantage of a resource that God never expected me to take advantage of? And I'm not saying go buy a Prius, because those are all ugly. But I'm just saying, the Christian mind has the capacity in those moments to wonder deeper than just the dollar. To say, God, how good are you that I live in this crazy world that requires me to pump gas. And yet in this, I see you. Your glory, your goodness, your provision, your providing, your creation. And you let us enjoy it. Do you see how that works? One minute you're watching the thing click up, and the next minute you're going, God, how good are you? That's the Christian mind. Number two, soak in the word of God. God's word tells us that the grass withers, the flowers fade, and I would add, the patterns of this world change, but the word of God stands forever, and I find the will of God in the word of God, and when I know the word of God, I walk in the will of God. My grandfather passed away about 10 months ago. He wrote a ton of books, and in one of them, he wrote this. He said, there's no substitute for an understanding mind. Satan can defeat the ignorant believer, but he cannot overcome the Christian who knows his or her Bible and understands the purposes of God. So are you soaking in the word of God? Because what you allow to soak in you will become you. I soak my time in a lot of frivolous things. I'm sure you do too. It's part of being a distracted American. But friends, if we soak in the word of God, we start to understand the glory of Jesus and the counterfeits of this world. My wife recently has downloaded this app called the Dwell app. It costs like a billion dollars. But it's been awesome for her in the sense that she puts it on when she's making lunch for the kids and she, she listens to the word of God. It's just people reading the Bible. It's like soft like music that plays beneath it. It puts me to sleep, quite honestly. That's why I don't use it. But for her, it's this really incredible moment where she can just let the words of Scripture wash over the hearts of her soul. For me, I, I tend to be a little bit more um, nerdy logical. I don't mean that in a positive way. I just mean that we're different. And, and for me, I just have to read through it myself. I have to force myself to be in it. I can't just hear it. I have to see it. I don't know what you are, but how do you soak in God's Word? There's a million ways today to soak in God's Word, but if you want to have your mind renewed, you've got to soak in God's Word. Number two, uh, if you're going to change your mind or have your mind renewed, you've got to look for the glory of God in Jesus, soak in the Word of God, and then third, evaluate the patterns of this world. Become a student of your culture. Only if you're informed on the patterns of this world can you refuse to conform the Christian, listen, HP, we are never going to be a church that runs away from the culture. and We're never going to be a church that carte blanche embraces the culture. Do you know who we're called to be? Hope Portage, Bethel Church. Do you know who we are? We are a Trojan horse in the midst of society. We are called to be subversive people. To not conform, but to become quiet transformers. And the way that God wants us to do this is to have our gaze fixed upon him, to have his word rightly planted inside of us, and then for us to know with understanding the times that we live in. I I know he was God, but Jesus, when he was on this earth, John chapter uh, 3, or John chapter 2, right before it gets into John chapter 3, it ends with this phrase that Jesus did not entrust himself to any man, for he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew his time. He knew people. And friends, you and I need to be a little bit more willing to understand what's going on in the culture so that we can speak intelligently to the culture. I never want to be a place where we are uninformed about what's happening in the world. We've got to be able to evaluate it. And finally, we're going to test by the Holy Spirit. Test it. I find bringing my prejudices and my assumptions to the Lord in prayer often yields to me a great deal of discernment. In, in your prayers, I wonder if you ever ask God to renew your mind. Tonight in our elder-led prayer, our, one of our elders is going to stand up here and have uh, us ask God to renew our minds. We're going to just pray that tonight as a, as a body, and I hope you come. We've got, a, I think, a couple hundred people are already registered. You, there's more space. Come, please. I won't be by the food, I promise. These are all things that the Holy Spirit does, though. When we bring him our assumptions, he compares them to Christ and shows us in his word by illuminating truth to us, convinces us of right and wrong, of sin and righteousness. We can give God permission to do this in our lives. And finally, I want you to see this. When you do that, you can see the Holy Spirit glorify Jesus. And all of a sudden, the whole thing becomes rinse, wash, repeat. When you look for the glory of God in Jesus, when you soak in the word of God, you evaluate the patterns of this world, you test them by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to show you what is transformed to Christ and what all else falls away. And then you're going to soak in the word of God even more and evaluate the patterns of this world even more and test them by the Holy Spirit. And and you're going to see the Holy Spirit again glorify Jesus. And the whole process is going to rinse, wash, and repeat. It's going to be a renewal in your life. Friends, as this process happens in your life, I know this to be true. That You'll find the premise of Paul and the words of my professor and the pleadings of your humble pastor to know that everything in this life is theology. If only we have the mind of Christ to see it together.